You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light, our 99th episode to be exact. I am your host, J.D. Rieger. This week, my guest is the musician and music writer Alex Green from The Raining Sound and the Memphis Flyer. This Thursday, June 30th in Memphis, Alex will be performing his new original score to the silent film Flesh and the Devil at GPAC's outdoor venue The Grove, He'll be backed by the Rolling Head Orchestra, Blue Shift Ensemble, and thereminist extraordinaire Kate Taylor Hunt. For more info, visit gpacweb.com. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Alex Green. Alex, thanks for having me over to your house to do this. This is awesome. Oh, sure, man. Boy, it's great for me. Just show up at my doorstep and I get to ramble on. It's a dream come true. <laughs> well... I came over with the intent of talking about this thing you're doing at GPAC, of course, but I want to ask you about some other stuff first, if that's cool. Yeah, sure. I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the raining sound. You just played your last show. What was that experience like? You know, it was uh, surprisingly without... uh, bad feelings or regrets or anything it was just a joyous joyful experience i was there in the crowd it was a fun night yeah yeah i mean uh it it brought out the real diehard fans and uh, you know leading up to it yeah yeah i think uh, it was 2800 people is what they told us wow yeah uh and leading up to it you know a lot of people were like why and uh of course the band knew before the general public and um we all just kind of took it in stride uh personally for myself you know i had a lot of practice not considering myself a member of raining sound as did a lot of our uh you know us memphians who played in the first lineup because greg went on and the raining sound was uh, you know his his creature to uh you know to stoke with whatever players he wanted and he had some other great versions without any memphians um so then when he did come back to record a little more time it was all just like a gift it was all like um you know, just the cherry on the cake, so to speak. Was was it gratifying to you to get to be a part of the final run? Yeah, yeah. I think it would have been a sadder occasion if I'd gone to see Greg with the Javons or whatever other, you know, group he used as Raining Sound, you know, saying this is it. I think it was quite appropriate of him to, you know close it out the way it began do you think this is one of those things that's really etched in stone never going to happen or you think you know five ten who have who knows how many years 
maybe you'll play again someday. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we could get together, you know, when we're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or... Uh... Sure. The Memphis <laughs> Music Hall of Fame doesn't seem out of the question, honestly. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, something like that. Uh, even Greg kind of left a little wiggle room as we closed... He, he said a few words when we finished saying, I said the shell would be our last show ever, but that means we can still come back here and play again. And I'll still be technically correct. That's very uh, pro wrestling of him. <laughs> yeah. Leave the exactly. door open. That was, yeah. Never retired. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it wasn't inspired by any rancor or anything within the group. It was more just, I think, Greg being an artist and wanting to shed that skin. And you're going to be playing with Greg again in the near future, right? Yes. Uh, already, I've been rehearsing with uh, a, a lineup of the Compulsive Gamblers that's sort of uh, a hybrid of the group the version of the gamblers that cut crystal gazing look amazing uh they cut that up in detroit with jeff meyer on bass and he's joining us he came down for rehearsals and um uh and of course jack and greg and then um graham winchester's drumming i'm playing and john whittemore's doing his uh, utility player thing that sounds like a heck of a lineup yeah yeah, it's uh, it really is feeling great based on our rehearsals, it, it, and it's f even with some overlap of songs, it's quite a different beast from Raining Sound, you know. Yeah, are you guys just doing Gonerfest, or maybe more after that? Actually, more before that. Yeah, uh, I think I can say we're gonna play uh, Milwaukee, Chicago, Cleveland, and, and Detroit. I think those are locked in. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm psyched to be doing that. And uh, and you've got another project that's uh, entirely a different thing called The Egg. That's got that's going to be coming out soon, right, on a label in Spain, you were telling me? Uh, yeah, close. Uh, a Portuguese label. Oh, so close. <laughs> Geographically. Iberian Peninsula. Uh, yeah. An Iberian label is putting us out. Uh, the Egg based in Lisbon. Um, the Egg is, is uh, capital E-G-G-G. -G -G. Uh, th that's been an ongoing project between me and Luis Seixas, who's an electronic musician from Lisbon. And uh, he also runs a label devoted to electronic kind of experimental music there so he's putting the stuff we've recorded uh, all extemporaneous completely just like into the fray let's make something up we might agree on you know beats per minute and then we just dive in and there are a couple tracks too with our friend sean marsh who does a mean robert johnson kind of guitar but with us he stretches out but adds these kind of ambient blues touches so i'm really excited about that is that a remote collaboration or do you do that in person it was in person. Okay. The, the the one where we played as a trio was uh, December of 2019 at the Green Room. Um, That's before I moved, so. 
Gotta oh, give me oh. some slack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, and then, of course, Luis lives, he's lived in Memphis for the past 10 years. So, oh, okay. So we play around town. Right on. Yeah, we've never met. I don't know how that worked out, but. Yeah, well, you should. <laughs> you got anything coming up for the flyer you're excited about? Uh, I am excited mostly about today's cover story. I did a thing on the current state of the blues and I didn't really know what I was getting into as I started to write it, but I found this, there's like a renaissance of creative kind of, uh, thinking out of the box genre breaking kind of blues happening now so it's an exciting time and uh i as with so many of my uh cover stories like hip-hop renaissance or what have you uh i i just realize wow there's all this stuff going on that i only kind of suspected when i i had a gut feeling to pitch an article it was accepted, and then as I research it, I learn just how much is going on in, in that field, and the blues is no exception. Who are some of the artists you talked to and discovered? Well, I got to say, probably my favorite album of last year is uh, I Be Tryin' by Cedric Burnside. It's just a stunner, just and really a whole different feel and a whole different way of creating and listening to the blues uh, there are even the kind of echoes of Ale Farcatore uh, and influences you wouldn't expect and yet it still feels really organic and coming out of the the hill country of north mississippi so oh that's cool i've been someone uh turned me on to a new group called memphis Simp Memphisippi sounds. I think yeah. they're pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, they're in my article too. Oh, right on. I thought they might be. Yeah. So, all you uh, listeners, you know, check that out. <laughs> It'll be online for all time now. Yeah, it should be online even now as we speak. Certainly as this art, as this podcast releases. Yeah, yeah, and in perpetuity for all time into eternity. <laughs> As long as ones and zeros last, anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so let's get into this thing you're doing June 30th at GPAC in The Grove. It's going to be a soundtrack for a silent film called Flesh and the Devil. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into I I mean, I know that I've got a lot of questions here. I know that you're sort of the the leader of this project but you've got a lot of supporting players with you right yeah it's kind of a huge group uh by my rock and roll standards uh so i don't we, know that raining sound lineup was pretty big <laughs> yeah true <laughs> um yeah i think that got up to nine players at one time the raining sound this version has 11 in previous live scores we've done and this will be our third um uh, we've the previous two we we've used a dozen players, and uh, the way that happens is I'm starting with a sextet, the Rolling Head Orchestra, which is kind of my jazz and or singer songwriter 
backing group. Uh, but it's really made of great jazz players, Jim Spake, Mark Franklin, Tom Leonardo, Carl uh, Casperson on bass. And then uh, this time around, we have Jim Duckworth on guitar. Sometimes we have John Whittemore oh, on wow. pedal steel. So that's how's the Jim, How's Jim doing? Jim Duckworth? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, he is doing great. He just retired uh, from teaching for, you know umpteen million years and he, he, he it's just a breath of fresh air you can tell it's done him a world of good i need to have jim on the podcast he's you know he's he's got the modifier shared lineage so it, it's been on my list i just haven't done it yet oh yeah and he's a he's a great raconteur as well he's the best yeah <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to derail no that's fine uh, so yeah, i mean i could go on about all of the basic six players in the rolling head orchestra they're all really amazing tom Leonardo, of course best known for the dog police of course uh, so yeah the classic <laughs> the i actually my copy of dog police is signed in character <laughs> very good yeah um that's going to be worth something someday I, I'm just, someday if i keep, if i live long enough <laughs> Um, so then we're augmented by uh, sometimes a quintet. Some, uh, this year it's a quartet uh, version of the Blue Shift Ensemble, which is a group of uh, Memphis Symphony Orchestra players who tend to do the more avant-garde works. They collaborate, uh, or at least before COVID did annually, with the Iceberg Composers Collective in um, New York. And those composers come down here and hear their uh, quote-unquote new music, as it's called, kind of contemporary classical um, or played by classical players anyway, kind of free-thinking compositions, um, avant-garde, you might say. Uh, they, they're used to that sort of world. Uh, and as well as, you know, straight classical, they do with the MSO. So uh, it's really amazing to work with these world-class classical players. Uh, and th that includes Jonathan Kirksey, who's, you know, might be best known for his wonderful soundtracks to uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Mr. Rogers film. Oh, wow. And I didn't know. He, he, was, he was briefly in two-way radio. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. He, he dabbles in a lot of uh, and rock he played, groups. Played in many snow globe shows, I think. But Yeah, yeah. But he did a few, and he played on, he played on the two-way radio record. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he's very comfortable, you know, hopping genres. And he played with Harlan T. Bobo a lot back in the day. And, of course, Mouse Rocket. He's been a consistent member uh, and, and collaborates with Alicia in different ways, too. So, and I have to say, one of his best soundtracks, too, was the... Uh, the soundtrack to the best of enemies it was a documentary robert gordon made about uh william f Bu buckley and gore vidal uh, highly recommended haven't seen it anyway uh so jonathan's in there jenny davis on flute who we all have to thank for uh, this amazing curation of the Crosstown Arts concert series. 
and uh, then Hannah Dickerson on bassoon and uh, Rebecca Ratliff on violin and so then on top of those 10 musicians you also have the thereminist yes exactly her reputation precedes her she's quite amazing Kate Taylor from Florence and um, she was at one time the concert master of the Scholl Symphony a world-class violinist uh, but an injury to her arm prevented her from continuing that so she turned to theremin because you don't have to hold anything to play that and all her fine ear t- uh, training with the Scholl's symphony I think really fed into uh, her grasp of the theremin uh, and she is just so on point as far as carrying a melody and uh playing it expressively it's, yeah, it's that's an really amazing thing to see i you know I, you look at you see someone play a theremin it looks super easy but trying to actually do it it is not easy to do something i mean it's easy to make crazy sounds but yeah. getting something really musical out of it is harder than it looks yeah exactly um and it's nice she can do some sound effects which is what all that a lot of people can do with a theremin like uh, last year in the buster keaton film the cameraman she did a bang up uh, fire siren uh, for a fire truck with the theremin but she also played the main love theme uh beautifully uh, and um she'll be taking on some pieces that will showcase the theremin uh next week when we do flesh and the devil how did you get started doing these silent film scores in the first place? What was the original inspiration for getting into this? Well, I think the original inspiration goes back to my college days at NYU when the seed was planted. And I discovered a scholar, a writer named Kevin Brownlow, who has a great book about the silent movies, uh, The Parade's Gone By. And he, even then in New York, you know, I was kind of in film circles. He was doing presentations about restoring uh, say the general by buster keaton i think was one where he would speak before the film and we and then we would all screen a restored version of it and that got me deeply into silent film and at the same time um i saw a restored version of napoleon by abel gans dating back to the 20s i forget what year and uh that was with the radio city music hall orchestra backing this incredibly epic silent film and uh so those two things planted the seed that stayed with me for decades really and i didn't really get a chance to do it until i was a resident composer at crosstown arts in 2019 and they facilitated me setting up a, a date at the crosstown theater and it culminated in scoring the short a trip to the moon by uh, Meliers. that was a, a short 15 minute film combined with a soviet silent film from 1924 called elita queen of mars and so in one night we did a, a live score for both of those and it was 
uh, very it was a new experience it was very exciting and kind of seat of the pants and scary but it really uh because of the level of the players partly we pulled it off uh, and it was uh, just so gratifying you mentioned it being a seat of seat of the pants sort of thing and that's one of the things i wanted to ask you about actually is the challenge of a live performance is it hard to stay in sync and have you know what you intended where where you wanted it yeah it was especially hard that first time because uh, for technical reasons there was no way the crosstown people could embed a time code uh that i would be able to see or you know allow me to see any kind of time code uh so i just had to start a a stopwatch when the film started rolling and just kind of wing it and and just really watch for the visual cues like okay i know when it's about to cut to the train full of soldiers and then i have to cue john whittemore to play heavy feedback guitar (laughs) things like that i would just have these i would have seen the film so many times and gone over the cues i just kind of had to um just do it visually and it was tricky because all these players are so great which means it's very hard to get them to commit to a rehearsal even Uh, especially with the the pittance i'm able to pay them compared to really what they deserve so uh for that one uh we had a, a Uh, a rehearsal with the classical people and then a rehearsal with the jazz people and we never really put it together till the night of the show i want to know about the thought process that goes into writing these scores specifically like are you trying to replicate music of the period of the film are you trying to capture the mood of the film no matter what what is your what is your thinking yeah well i think my approach really grows out of The way I first did live scores, which was uh, I had the music even before I had picked a film. Back when I was the resident composer at Crosstown Arts, I had this batch of uh, instrumental tunes that I intended to put out as an exotica record. Uh, We did studio recordings at Easley Studio, and um, they just... (laughs) had a kind of generally wacky and maybe cinematic thematic feel. So um, then I retooled that batch of tunes for Elita, Queen of Mars, and A Trip to the Moon. And uh, I, I also just have, at any given time, a kind of a back stock of compositions and so I pulled from those. I'd drop them in at certain parts of the film, see how those work. And so I'm not really slavishly trying to recreate any one era. I guess uh, a lot of what I compose might be considered kind of retro. But uh, I was just thinking this the other day as we work on the music for Flesh and the Devil. Um, I I feel like it's as if a 50s jazz band was scoring a 20s film. You know, the kinds of uh, uh, chord changes and melodies I'm writing, the kind of feel, it's not necessarily 
of the twenties and I don't let that constrain me at all. Um, if anything, it's more like, uh, fifties jazz and, um, just the kind of harmonics it, it has. And I, to a modern day, you know, 21st century audience, it all seems kind of old and it all seems to kind of fit, you know? Uh, so in, in that, um, you know, in the space of like the twenties to the sixties, that's a lot of stylistic room, especially if you take into account the avant-garde music of those eras. And I feel, uh, uh, you know, I can, I could really draw from any era, you know, like Alita Queen of Mars had long passages of heavily distorted feedback guitar, courtesy of John Whittemore. And that was uh, a great element of surprise, you know, that you come in with these classical sounds of a, a classical quintet with strings and woodwinds, and then when the soldiers arrive on the train, you know, so <laughs> that's kind of gratifying and the, you know, it, it's tastefully used for dramatic effect, but I do use elements of, uh, you know, all kinds of late 20th century music. And I guess the main thing is that it's all going to sound older because I don't use drum machines or samples. It's all just real players on um you know organic wood and metal instruments for the most part a little synthesizer and then that brings us to the theremin which is like the first really commercially available electronic musical instrument and uh it was invented in the 20 in 1920 and um it it in a way it feels both nostalgic and futuristic you know it'll always have connotations of futurist music you know it feels futuristic in the way that like epcot center feels futuristic <laughs> yeah if that, yeah if it, that makes sense yeah retro futuristic or something like that uh but i found also you know it doesn't have to be limited to just sci-fi or what have you horror films or anything i was really effective in uh uh buster keaton's the cameraman last summer and that doesn't you know i i basically used it to suggest the mystery of love and magnetic attraction and uh you know the the mystery of the camera itself and he's toting around this newsreel film camera and it comes up because he's some somewhat incompetent it comes up with like backwards images and superimposed images and all these kind of weird avant-garde things and the theremin kind of captured that uh that element of this new wild medium called photography and uh moving pictures you know i'm curious what kind of music or scores were these films shown with originally anything yeah it's hard to know originally uh because that would often be up to a pianist or an organist at the cinema where the 
particular cinema it's screened at one so by one. So there would one. be no like recommended piece of music to accompany a film. Not that I know of, although there may have been little uh, cheat sheets recommending. I, I've, I've found uh, a lot of times it would be pastiches of classical themes that would be appropriate to each particular scene. So things familiar to any music hall piano player, they could go into a cinema and accompany, uh, you know, playing a bit of Rimsky-Korsakov and a bit of Tchaikovsky and this famous by Brahms or whatever. And so they would do that. Um, later, uh, it became more codified as silent films were released, uh, say, on television or vhs or then dvds and etc for home use um and even before that you know like uh, uh at film festivals you know they would commission new scores and some of them are okay i try to ignore those completely like for flesh and the devil the the one on the uh dvd i got was uh it was very nice and very, you know, strictly cued to where like every little funny gag, uh, you know, sight gag is punctuated with a or something, you know, some, you know, they can afford the luxury of just going in and rehearsing and doing it in a recording studio and matching it up when it's a live score. You can't really sync that precisely. Uh, maybe I know at this particular time that we're, we're, we're going to need a fire bell or church bells. Um, and we might have a bell on hand to, to do that. Uh, we did that with a fire alarm last year in the Buster Keaton film, things like that. Uh, but generally it's, uh, it's more a matter of, just setting the mood of a scene and then what i've found so i have all these pieces i compose and i compose them really without a particular scene in mind i'll watch the movie like i watched flesh and the devil back in december and i decided okay this is going to be the one and then i just went away from it and kind of let it stew in my brain with the memory of the various moods and then I just started writing tunes because that's really my ultimate goal is to write kind of new standards, if you will. You know, all the jazz players have the standards they play. You have your fake book. It's just a chart with chord changes and a lead melody. And, you know, A, A, B section, A section, uh, whatever. And it's just a standard kind of way of presenting these tunes that are part of the uh, American psyche, you know, from Gershwin to, uh, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein or whatever. Um, so I aspire to that. So really I sat down and set before myself the goal of gonna, I'm going to write some standards that will also apply to this film. Because really what I want to have in the end, after all these movies, is a, a book of Rolling Head Orchestra compositions that sound like they could be from any time in the 20th century. These kind of uh, simple 
compelling, harmonically interesting melodies with kind of out there jazz changes. And um, that's my goal. And so that's how I do it. And so far it's worked. I'll write a bunch of standards and then I go back once I have them in my back pocket, so to speak, I'll go back and look at the film and say, Oh yeah, I can fit this in right here in this love scene, or this one's perfect for the party scene. So previous, I mean, you don't listen to like a previous score that was written for flesh of the devil and think, Oh, I want to do this differently. You ignore it entirely. I, I like the first time I watch the film, I of course listen to it with whatever is provided on YouTube or the the DVD or whatever. And then I try not to listen to it ever again. I don't want to be affected by any of those decisions and really I want it I want it just to come from my own musical inspiration. Um even more than I, than I want it to be driven by the film itself. In a way, that makes these live scores kind of a luxury. Uh, and I bet any soundtrack composer kind of envies me because, you know, I'm not going to get in an argument with Buster Keaton about what music I use for that scene. I don't have to compromise, hash it out with a director now, granted, I do love that process and the collaborative process, but it is kind of fiendishly decadent to be able just to have this film and just, I, it's just all up to me. I just lay the music in there how I see fit. What kind of permissions do you have to get? I mean, obviously, I guess you have to get some sort of permission to screen the film, but you can just accompany it, accompany it with whatever music you decide? Yeah. That's all it's ever been, just the basic license for a public performance of the silent film. And there are uh, distribution companies that handle that. Uh, Every venue has its preferred uh, distribution company, like GPAC uses one called Swank, which uh, (laughs) sounds a little sketch, (laughs) but it's quite legit. Did you pick this film? Yeah. Or did they ask, do you pick them all? Yeah. I've picked everyone so far, uh, but I, I start with, uh, like when I go to GPAC, I, I look at their distributor, I say, oh, I want to do a Garbo film. What Garbo titles do they have available? So then that's, that kind of narrows my search and I go with what their distributor can actually provide. And I go from there. What attracted you to this film specifically? Yeah, well, I work. I, I I looked at a couple um, Garbo films, two or three, and this one really stood out as being just very bizarre, and partly because of the cinematography. It's very advanced. Uh, William Daniels was the cinematographer, and it, it's just very creative. There are times when, you know, you just see the silhouettes of figures against the sunset and it looks like some art film from the 50s or something. Uh, There are these scenes where uh, 
at times it's Garbo's face, at times it's like childhood memories. They're superimposed and they're just kind of floating in front of the characters, you know, like uh, a film within a film, this little cloud with Garbo's face, you know, staring down on the fellow in the desert or something like that. And that was really groundbreaking. And ultimately, uh, it was just kind of a bizarre, unpredictable story. And Garbo herself just shines. And uh, Garbo with John Gilbert, her her co-star, who at the time was the bigger star, she became a star in with this film it was her third film in hollywood um the chemistry between the two of them garbo and gilbert is incredible because they were falling in love in real life at the time and the director clarence brown said he was kind of embarrassed to yell cut because in a love scene because they were so into each other and that the sparks really come through on the film too so that was just what i was after you know we we did keaton a comedy last summer and that had some sweet romantic moments but you know i i wanted something very steamy to fit the steamy uh memphis summer (laughs) and i was just this had all the boxes checked off it was great tell me a little bit about the venue i've been to g-pack but i don't know anything about the grove what is it like seeing do they do they show films there often yeah they do and they have music there often so they uh every friday since uh, i think march or april they've had the bluebird a concert series it's just live music on this outdoor stage it's a beautiful uh state-of-the-art stage with not only amazing uh sound but uh they've installed this huge screen it's like a high-res led screen that is even in broad daylight a film image on it just like it's so clear and vivid it's it's really stunning wow so they do have they have like family night movies uh, uh, pocahontas or you know other disney movies or fun things like that mostly um just kind of light family picnic movies and that's kind of what the setting is for you're out there in the grassy park they kept all these old growth trees it's a huge grove of trees that keep it shady and because there's no uh concrete and because of all the trees it just gets so cool so quickly as the sun's going down and it's really lovely even last year it was in july and it was just pleasant as could be and i think this one uh in june um it's even supposed to cool down a bit at the end of next week. So I'm very hopeful. It's a great venue. So no challenges staging something like this outside as opposed to inside at a venue like Crosstown Theater? Um, not really. Uh, as long as you accept that whatever music you come up with is going to be augmented by nature. 
So I noticed this editing the mix of last year's live score. Uh, as the night proceeds and it gets darker, the music is mixed in more with the sound of cicadas. And I, I love that. You know, it's like, it's definitely a live score happening in Memphis, Tennessee, in the midst of summer. Do you get that in the recording? Yeah. Yeah. Just a little, you know, but it's subtle. Um, That's neat. Yeah, it, it's a nice little bit of ambiance, I guess. Would you want to play me something? Yeah, so um, I was speaking of writing standards. Um, so uh, I've, you know, that's kind of my shorthand for what I'm trying to create here. But uh, I've got this very piano I'll be using at the show, in fact. Uh, so this one is called Come Hither to Me. You said that was called come hither to me what's 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 the scene like that that goes with well like i say i just kind of created a mood that i felt was, so the music uh, came before the scene yeah i i you know what written, i mean i haven't written any of these geared to a specific scene but i knew that there was that there were several scenes with garbo expressing this come hither look and just being very alluring and uh yeah i read something about this film having some i don't know what the right word is but for the time uh some pretty heavy duty love scenes yes it, it had the first open mouth kiss in hollywood history and the first get this horizontal love scene so 
So there were vertical love scenes previous to I this? I guess, yeah. I don't know. Like tied together on a, I don't know. That's, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, by our standards, really the most uh, kind of uh, risque thing is the title itself. But it's pretty steamy, you know. And you can imagine how uh, it it was a groundbreaker back then. And I think that's one thing that made it so popular. It was a hit. Hearing that piece you just played, I definitely get a sense of you were describing sort of wanting it to be sort of a new standard. Yeah. I, I, I got that vibe completely. Great, great. Yeah. My model, of course, is Duke Ellington. And I just... I'm always listening to Duke Ellington and I teach a lot of Duke Ellington to my piano students and study his kind of chord changes. And, um, uh, so I'm sure you can hear that, uh, echoes of that anyway in, in my stuff. Well, I'm not so educated in jazz (laughs) that I would pick that up. Uh, I, I will, I will admit but um, a, a specific influence, but uh, I, I definitely get the vibe of uh, a sense of, of of what you're what you're shooting for. Do you great? Do you want to play anything else? Um, let's see. Uh, I I think I'll just let that stand. That seems, that's fine. No yeah. pressure. Um, if, if you want more, you got to come to the show. <laughs> exactly, and. Uh, I would add that because I write for all three of these live score events I've done, I write the pieces as standalone pieces, like an A, A, B, A section, and then solo over it. And um, the band and I are really excited to, uh, you know, further down the road, maybe this fall, um, just do a show of our movie themes, but just like, kind of wailing on them soloing trading off solos and arrangement you know tweaking detached the from the screen yeah they're, they're standalone pieces and i think uh we're going to start playing them as such uh in the near future however having said that when speaking of this fall <laughs> i can deliver the latest scoop of the day which involves our revered film festival here in memphis indie memphis oh are you doing something with them this year yeah it was just confirmed uh breaking uh, news and it's just gonna be yeah really uh it's gonna be happening sometime between october 19th and 24th and um it'll be just the jazz band with the thereminist kate and uh one of my dearest musical friends of friends of any kind chad fowler who lives in arkansas and he's immersed more in the free jazz world downtown new york scene and uh and in memphis and you can see him playing with frog squad among others here um yeah he's going to be participating as well. So it'll be a little scaled back, uh, ensemble, uh, just seven or eight people. Uh, but definitely with theremin and, uh, we're really looking forward to that. So watch for details to come. 
Yes, we'll stay tuned. <laughs> Anything else we can hit on before we part company? Uh, I I think that's about it. Just thank you, and it's an honor to be on your 99th show of Back <laughs> to the Light. And a uh, three-time guest, I think. This makes you a three-timer. Oh, yeah. That's right. Right. When and you get to five, there's a jacket. <laughs> I'm holding out for that. Yeah. And uh, uh, 99 is a fine number. In some ways, it's cooler than 100, you know? Because oh, you can scream like Wilson Pickett. 99 and a half. Or Jay-Z. won't do. If this was golf, 99 would be a better score. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so more power to you. Rock on. And thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for having me over. And thanks for helping me out on the technical side. Oh, yeah, sure. See ya. That's the show. Thank you to Alex Green. Thank you to Arthur with two H's and Joey Pegram for the opening and closing themes, respectively. Thank you for listening. For music, news, episode archives, and other fine podcasts, visit backtothelight.net. And until next time, episode 100, take care, y'all. of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.